Andy and Bendy. Hello. Ho, 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 even. From this special Christmas edition of the podcast they couldn't stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. Well, I say no one could stop it. But as we're going to find out from our special guest on this special Christmas podcast, there is one surefire way of shutting us up. So stay tuned if that's what you want to do. In the meantime, I'm still Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and my friends still call me Waldy. And I'm joined once again by a man for all seasons. In the summer, he's an art historian. In the autumn, he's on the telly. In the winter, he's an art dealer. And in the spring, he delivers baby lambs into the world because he's also a farmer. Is there anything Bendor Bendy Grosvenor can't do? Let's ask him, Bendy, what can't you do? Well, I can't be as good as you, Weldy. Basically, I've decided, trying these podcasts for the best part of the year, I'm always hanging onto your coattails. It's a privilege to be with you. Um, I should say I'm no longer an art dealer. But you're doing the lambs, aren't you, in the spring? Loads lambs of lambs in the spring, yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, so anyway, now later in this uh, Christmas special, Bendy, uh, you're going to be talking to a genuine Hollywood superstar. They don't come much bigger. So that's very, very, very exciting. We're also going to be hearing from a man who gave us the most popular Christmas song in Britain. Yep, that one. So that's all coming up in the Waldy and Bendy Christmas special. But first, there's something else that needs to happen because it's time to get off the fence. Time to stop shilly-shallying. Time for the truth to come out. The Waldy and Bendy They tried to stop them. They tried to suppress them, but they couldn't. That's right, folks. The Waldy and Bendy Awards are back after their autumn recess. And this time, because it's Christmas, the Electoral College at the Wendy's has been trying to reach a momentous decision. Because we're looking for the best nativity painting in art. It's the ultimate Christmas subject, the birth of Jesus in the stable. So who's done it best? Now, the way we've done this, and it's very democratic, uh, I came up with a short list, and then Bendy, me, and Taya, our producer, voted for the ones we like most. So there's very little room for error, none really. And the good news is that you too can see all the pictures, everything we talk about, on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. It's all there. So Bendy, we've voted, and at number five, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, we have Georges de la Tour, with that gorgeous uh, adoration of the shepherds that's in the Louvre. Georges de la Tour at number five, what do you think of that? Oh, now this is a painting for the Christmas season, isn't it? I can really linger in front of this one at the Louvre, in fact I have done many times, and just stare at it until you forget all about time. So many nativity pictures are overcrowded and overbearing, aren't they? But this one, Georges de la Tour does what he does best, which is strip everything back to its simplicity. There's an aesthetic simplicity about this and a spiritual simplicity too. I love it. I, but it all comes down to the fact that there's the single light source, that Caravage-esque single light source, which of course is ostensibly from a candle, but really is coming from the, the tightly swaddled Christ child there on the floor of the manger. Yep. He's the light bulb, isn't he, in the middle of the picture. Uh, typical Georges de la Tour in that it's all about the light, isn't it? All about the light in the dark, as it were, because obviously that's what 
he specialized in these beautiful nighttime effects with candles and things. So he was um, 1593 to 1652, right? Slightly late Baroque, um, but right at the heart of that kind of Caravaggesque moment in art, isn't it? And you can see that the influence of Caravaggio flowing all the way through him here. Um, but he was forgotten. There's yet another one of these painters like, like Vermeer, like El Greco. I mean, some of the greatest painters that we like now, they're almost obliged to spend a few hundred years in obscurity before someone dug them up again. Um, and the same happened to Georges de la Tour. And of course, I think there are two things about him that make him special. Well, one is this thing with the light, you know, always these beautiful, spooky, nocturnal light effects, which are really shown off in this particular nativity. And the second thing is this stillness of his figures, isn't there? Mm. I mean, there's something unusually still about them. There's like a Japanese quality or something, something quite unlike what other European artists were doing. And, and you really see it in this, don't you? Particularly, I think, in the figure of the Virgin Mary on the left, praying. She's so still and calm, almost Buddhist, actually. And yes. then the baby, I mean, look at the baby. The baby isn't moving an inch, is it? Just swaddled and lying there and sort of gorgeous and glowing with babydom. Yeah, no, he's a wonderful painter and so idiosyncratic. It's a really a marvel as to how he was forgotten because his his approach to painting seems to be so distinctive. But you're right, he was absolutely forgotten till about 1915, in fact, when an artist or called Voss stumbled across a record with a painter by this name. And really his his whole herb has had to be sort of assembled from scratch. And that has led to some considerable controversy as to what he did or did not paint. At the moment we have about 40, I think, or 50 paintings mostly agreed to be by him. I sometimes wonder why artists don't just sign their pictures with large letters on the front of the canvas. Um, but then I suppose there'd be no fun in art history, would there? I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. So the baby in the middle here, the, the, the baby Jesus sort of swaddled, lying in the middle like a, like a Japanese doll or something. He's glowing, right? The light source in this picture, okay, there's one guy holding a candle, but basically it's Jesus that's lighting the scene, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And do you know where that comes from? Um, like Jesus Christ, light of the world? Yeah, more specific than that. So the reason why in all these, and you'll see it in several of, of the nativities that we've got on our list, the reason why the Jesus glows and is the main light source in a nativity is in the 14th century, there was um, a Swedish mystic called St. Bridget, St. Bridget of Sweden. And just before she died, she had um, a vision in the middle of the night. She dreamt that she saw the birth of Jesus and that Jesus was glowing with an inner light that this light was, was being thrown onto the Virgin Mary. And it's sort of shot around Europe, like wildfire, this idea. So suddenly you get all these nocturnal births oh, of Jesus nativity right. with the baby Jesus like a giant light bulb. And it was much, much later, as you well know, when you get to England, by the time you get to someone like um, Joseph Wright of Derby, for instance, where he painted his famous experiments with um, the air pump and those sorts of pictures, mm -hmm. um, they're based on nativities too. And it's the same sort of idea that there's a kind of glowing, miraculous light at the middle. And these, these illuminated faces around it. So um, yeah, wonderful, Georges Delatour, we all love him. But let's move on quickly because there's a lot to do here. At number four in our democratic vote, we've somehow arrived, and I must say this rather surprised me, at Pietro Orioli, who is a pretty obscure painter. Do, do you know anything about him, Bendor? Absolutely nothing. In fact, he wouldn't even have made my short list of 50. I don't, I don't know where you and Taylor um, <laughs> sprung his name from. <laughs> Uh, uh, I have to admit, I cheated a little bit in the sense I gave him loads of marks in the hope of, of, of getting him up the list because I knew you wouldn't. I mean, you know, in our original shortlist, the people that you dropped, you know, 
Piero della Francesca, Botticelli, you know, Gauguin, the long list of these nativities it was splattered with the blood of great artists that you got rid of. So I'm delighted that we managed to get to Pietro Orioli in. He is obscure. He was a Sienese painter, sort of roughly contemporary with Botticelli. And he specialised in, well, this interesting balance between naturalism and stylization, much as Botticelli did. And although his work also has some of the atmosphere of Savonarola that Botticelli had, you know, this kind of going back to a, a real Christianity, something more hardcore. Um, he was also, I think, sweeter than that. But he just represents, again, one of those artists who tends to have slipped down the back of the sofa and has been rediscovered more recently. And uh, this, this picture here is in the National Gallery. But there's there a fuss a few years ago about another adoration of the shepherds by him, which I think was David Lammy when he was shadow arts minister, save for the nation. But it's sweet and lovely, isn't it? You'll agree it's sweet and lovely. It's sweet and lovely, indeed it is. I think perhaps the, the best thing to say about it is it's, it's overall spectacle. The fact that it's still in its original frame with all the little predella at the bottom is charming. And that mimics the, the cave-like structure of the birthplace within the painting. And so it's a pretty spectacular 3D effect, especially with all those rather zany gold halos around the, the figures. Um, I, I like it. I mean, it's nice. I, I definitely have it on my wall. I would have gone for the Botticelli instead. <laughs> well, I smuggled it in, right? Uh, first of all, because I wanted to see you having great difficulty uh, describing it and having uh, anything to say about it. Because in many ways, it's a run-of-the-mill nativity. I'll give you that. The real reason I've got it in here, right, is it's, it's not actually the nativity bit of it. Who's the figure on the far right? Can you see a figure on the far right um, holding a bishop's crook? Uh, he looks like he's got a tennis ball. Is it? Is it the famous tennis-playing bishop of St. Wimbledon? <laughs> What colour is the tennis ball? Uh, orange. Yellowy, goldy, right? Okay. So this is a nativity with saints. So there's several saints have turned up miraculously to be there at the nativity. So far left, kneeling, you've got John the Baptist. On the right, kneeling, you've got St. Jerome with his rock, which he's going to bang his chest with. Standing behind him, the one we're talking about, is St. Nicholas of Barry. Now, do you remember him from your Bellini painting in, in Venice that you talked about a while ago? This is not Barry in Wales, is it? No. This is Barry where you get, you get your ferry to Greece, right, in the southern bit of um, Italy. Okay, so Nicholas of Barry was the original Father Christmas. Oh, so St. Nicholas of Barry was the bishop who was always kind and gave people presents and he heard about a father who was so poor that unfortunately he had sent his, or was going to send his daughters into prostitution because he couldn't afford a dowry for them. St. Nicholas of Barry heard about this. So one night he sneaked up to their house and through the hole in the window, he dropped three bags of gold, one for each of the daughters. And that gave them enough money not to become prostitutes, to marry and be happy ever after. So this is the origin of Father Christmas, St. Nicholas of Barry. Why does Father Christmas come down the chimney? Because of St. Nicholas of Barry. Why does he give presents? Because of St. Nicholas of Barry. The rest of it has changed a bit. It's not just because all your kids become prostitutes if you don't uh, get this gift from St. Nicholas of Barry, but it's part of the Christmas story and it's crucial. And I think this picture was actually painted for a church that was dedicated to St. Nicholas of Barry. So um, that's why I've got it in and that's why I manipulated um, all the figures uh, in order to be able to talk about Pietro Orioli, the very obscure, but given that it's Christmas, rather important painter. Okay, well, I feel very enlightened. Thank you very much. And uh, I shall place my mince pie and the 
glass of brandy out with a special reverence for St Nicholas on Christmas Eve this year. <laughs> You'll be coming down there. Hide your daughters, yeah. Um, <laughs> we're moving on, obviously, very quickly. Number three, I think this is more up your street. It's even more up my street, I have to say. And it's Caravaggio and it's uh, Adoration of the Shepherds. Um, but it's got one rather unusual thing to it, hasn't it, Bender? What is that? It's no longer there. Exactly. It's been half-inched. This is perhaps, this is probably the greatest loss, the greatest art theft, the most tragic loss there's, there's ever been, really. I think so. It's certainly up there, isn't it? I can't tell you how much I'd love to see it. The photographs we see now, are those photos of the original picture, all the reproduction that's hanging there now. No, what they've done, so it was stolen, when was it? The 60s, 1960s. Mafia took it, didn't they? Um, How they did it, I don't know. I mean, it's a whopping great picture. It's sort of, what, 10 foot tall or something. You know, it's it's big. Well, a carpet Um, went missing during the raid, and they think that they they cut it out of the frame uh, and rolled it up in the carpet and then walked it out like a a, a team of gormless removal men. Yeah. So this is Palermo in Sicily, you know, obviously the home of the mafia. And ever since it, it, it was nicked, everybody's been trying to work out where it is. I mean, it must still be out there somewhere. What's what's great about it is that it's an early Caravaggio, so painted in 1600, so, so painted in Rome, not in, in Sicily, you know, later on. So it's still got that kind of detailed early thing that he had with all the faces that we recognise from other pictures of his, the same model as the one for the uh, death of the Virgin that's in the Louvre, mm. you know, and the there's that sense of very clearly defined characters, people he'd found in the markets in Rome, you know, modelling for, for the saints, and the, the two main saints here that are in attendance are St Francis and St Lawrence. But it's, it's that intensity, isn't it? It's that thing that you get with Caravaggio being around right at that very moment. I can't I can't tell you how much I'd like to have seen this in real life, but no. So what they've done is they've put a photograph of it in, in the frame in the church. And if you go there, that's what you see uh, in the Church of St. Lawrence. I suspect this picture, alas, no longer survives because it's, it's huge, isn't it? And how do, you, how do you safely store such an enormous masterpiece and keep it out of sight from the Italian police for so many years? I suspect it's been cut up or buried and it, there's really not much of it left now. Well, surely, I mean, you know more about this than I do because you were in the art trade. You know, you've worked with Philip Mould. You know all about how these things are, you know, can happen. No one's going to steal this and cut it up, are they? Surely it's a mafia don has it hanging in their villa in, in Syracuse. I mean, surely it's still there somewhere, Bendy. I don't know. I think when, when pictures get too hot to handle, it's very easy for, for the villains to panic. One of the famous thefts in this country was the, the so-called Udry Duck taken, I think, from Houghton Hall in Norfolk. And the police almost set up a meeting to get it back. And the villains panicked at the last minute. And the last that was seen of it was driving off in the back, I think, of a Volvo estate with the boot lid banging up and down on the picture. There was nothing left after a, a journey across the muddy fields. Um, honestly, I don't know. We can, we can but live in hope. But it's a picture I would so love to see. I've always been intrigued by the, um, the depiction of Joseph, who's, who's there bottom right, isn't he, with his head turned away from us we only see the back of his head and he's pointing at christ and he's turning around to the the saints and the shepherds behind him and one wonders what caravaggio is making him say because joseph is a curious figure to cast in a nativity painting isn't he you always get the sense that artists don't quite know what to do with him well that's true of joseph in any painting isn't it but it's that just that sense that the characters are interrelating and and communicating with each other within the picture that's very caravaggio isn't it 
we're peeping in on a, on a moment where the characters in the picture are actually doing something together and we're, we're kept out of it a bit. I mean, that's typical. Oh, I'll tell you what you should do one day, um, Bendor, and that is go and see the other Caravaggio nativity that is still there in Sicily, which is in Messina, in the museum in Messina. There is an absolutely gorgeous, stunning adoration of the shepherds, which was done at the other end of his career. So, you know, 10, 15 years later, it's much darker, much moodier. Um, absolutely could not recommend it enough for you to mm -hmm. go one day to Messina to see it. Uh, so that's Caravaggio at number three among the best nativities. And as we said before, they're all on show. If you want to look at them at ZZFilms.com on the website. So number two, though, let's move on quickly. Number two, and I'm not really surprised here. I think pretty much all of us voted heavily for this. And it's that man, Hieronymus Bosch Bendor. It's the great Bosch painting, the Adoration of the Magi, uh, which is in the Prado in Madrid. Yes, whenever you go around the Prado, there is this painting with its scrum of onlookers around it. I've been lucky enough to film the Prado, as I'm sure you have. So I've been able to spend some time with this picture without the crowds. And it is mesmerizing, isn't it? It's, it's a triptych, it's got three wings, it's in lovely condition. So you, you get a sense that you could be right back there in the 15th century when, when Bosch is painting this. And what I love about it is it's quite normal, in inverted commas, for a Bosch, isn't it? I mean, we know him for those absolutely fantastical scenes where he, he must have been, I think, sniffing too much serpentine and painting all sorts of extraordinary <laughs> things. But the wonderful nativity here is we see Christ and, and Mary in a believably run-down farm dwelling. I think the, the roof is about to fall off. So, you know, there's a real sense of humbleness and poverty here. And there's some lovely little details, like on the left-hand side of the triptych, Joseph is banished <laughs> to the background, <laughs> and he's sitting over a fire drying Jesus's nappies. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> I think Bosch is the only person who could who could get away with painting such a detail like that. Um, it's full of lovely details. It's a, it's a picture you could spend hours with. I know. Bosch, I love Bosch. I mean, you think about it, he's a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci, so almost exactly at the same time. And yet his art is so different. You know, this difference between Southern Renaissance and the Northern Renaissance. But, uh, you know, it isn't just Joseph washing the nappies. If you do look into the details, there's plenty of weird stuff going on here. I mean, it's not the Garden of Earthly Delights. It's not all crazy. But there's a chap trying to get into the stable who seems to be mostly naked. He's got some robe uh, around his shoulders, but otherwise not much except for the crown on his head well who the hell is he you know there's a uh, some stuff at the back there's a uh, somebody getting eaten by a bear there's a war going on there's and there's of course lots of crosses now that doesn't surprise me so all these crosses that pop up in the landscape they're of course prefigurations of what's going to happen to jesus at the other end of his story so he's born to die basically so there's a lot of dark stuff in nativities you, you quite often get references to that and of course, it's the three kings this time. So it's not the shepherds who come to adore. It's the three kings or the, the magi. Uh, so do you know all about the three kings and, and who they're meant to be and how, they, how they're represented in art, Bendor? Well, I funny you should say that because I've just made a programme for a series five of Britain's Lost Masterpieces, which will be on our TV screens early next year. A Yus van Cleve, or I should say a possible painting by Yus van Cleve, of uh, Balthazar. Oh, yeah. Who is the, the Magi who is traditionally depicted in Western art as being uh, from Africa? Yes. And so I do know a little bit about him, actually. It's fascinating, absolutely mm. fascinating story as to why he is uh, represented as a black figure from about the 1400s onwards. He was from Ethiopia, wasn't he? Oh, isn't that the legend that, that Balthazar came from Ethiopia with 
bringing myrrh, myrrh, isn't it? Myrrh, myrrh's that incense. Well, I, I think in some source, some early sources, he's supposed to be from Armenia. Of course, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there is no mention of these these figures' names, where they come from, or indeed how many of them are there. So the, the three wise men thing is a much later tradition. Um, St. Bede, I think, in the 1100s, um, talks about Balthazar coming from Africa. And that was part of an attempt to portray the wise men as representing all corners of the globe. So they had to have an African figure. And so he thereafter is traditionally painted as a black figure. And usually he has um, a servant with him. In Bosch's case, the servant is another black figure too. And the blackness of Balthazar is, I think, drawn attention to in Bosch's painting, quite unusually by the fact that he's he's got this splendid white robes with gold trim on them. In some depictions of the, the three wise men at this period and later, Balthazar is sort of slightly kept in the back row. And I just think it's a, it's a fascinating moment in art history because, of course, by this point, all the other characters in pictures like this have become entirely Europeanized, haven't they? Um, they're very white. They could, they could have been, you know, gallivanting around in France. And Balthazar is the only figure who escapes that. And one wonders what, you know, how different our world would be today if artists had carried on depicting um, biblical figures as they would have looked at the time. Um, mm. uh, interesting question. Yeah, and you see, now, I think the best Balthazar in art, the best Balthazar at a nativity is Dürer's. Um, and you savagely got rid of Dürer from this list at uh, some early point. Mm. So you robbed us of, of that site. But yes, in a lot of art, in a lot of museums, the only noble black face that you see belongs to the third of the the three kings well actually he's the first isn't he because he's the youngest they, they also represent ages of man don't they so balthazar is the youngest and he's also the one from africa melchior is the middle-aged one isn't he he's a uh, usually shown as a middle-aged man with brown hair and then the oldest is always the king who's named after your donkey right that's right casper Casper, named after your donkey. So he's always the oldest. And he is in, in the Bosch as well. And he's the one who brings the gold. So Casper brings the gold. Melchior brings the frankincense. And Balthazar brings the myrrh. And you can see the gold in the Bosch because at the bottom there's a, like a bowl with a statue of something going on um, that he's giving to the Virgin Mary who's sitting there in this dilapidated stable waiting for stuff to happen. So it's a great painting. It's spooky, but also not quite as spooky as some Bosch. That's right, isn't it? I think so. And actually, I understood that one idea for the semi-naked figure in the doorway of the stable was uh, the Antichrist, wow. um, who's kind of uh, kept in abeyance by the um, the goodness of the birth of Jesus. Right. No, I haven't heard that. But it wouldn't surprise me because that's the kind of religious reading that you always get in Bosch. This is the thing that people always get wrong with, with Hieronymus Bosch. They start talking about him taking hallucinogenic drugs or being a member of some weird cult and all this. But basically, he was just really hardcore Catholic with wild <laughs> ideas about antichrists and things, um, which is not something you can say of our winner, by the way, coming up next. I'm not really surprised uh, that you voted him top. But the rest of us did as well, actually, if, you, if right, we're being honest. Good. Everybody went for the same picture. So there's a kind of unanimous thing. So the number one nativity in the whole of art that uh, we voted for, Bendor, is Rubens, the Adoration of the Magi, which hangs in the Prado. Oh, what a feast of a painting this one is. I mean, with our earlier choices, it's all very well and good. We get that sort of humble Christian sense that the birth of Christ was a small affair drawing a few uh, dedicated followers but in Rubens eyes 
it's a party, isn't it? I mean, my goodness, how, we've got a cast of dozens of dozens of people here. And we've got the three kings are in attendance. And they're the sort of kings that Rubens would have hung out with because they didn't travel like these kings. They've got a whole retinue of people. We've got camels and horses and people who look like wrestlers who are bearing their luggage train and all the gifts and various servants. I mean, there's all sorts of excitement going on here. Um, uh, the baby Jesus is not phased by any of this and neither is Mary. Uh, Joseph, of course, off at the left-hand side, looks a little bit befuddled. But... Um, What's so interesting when you look at this picture, especially on a reduced scale on the computer screen, is that the light obviously falls most obviously on Christ and Mary. But there's one very brightly illuminated figure on the right-hand side. Can you see him peering down there, Waldy? Yeah, and I know who it is as well. I recognise that face anywhere. <laughs> it's Rubens himself. It, of course it is. It's Rubens himself. <laughs> Getting himself into the action. It was something he liked to do. And it took some doing to stand out in this crowd because, I mean, you, there's enough there to fill a football stadium. <laughs> I mean, it is the by far the busiest of the nativities we've got here. I mean, the whole world turned up to watch the baby Jesus glowing in his little swaddling box in the, in the stable. Amazing, amazing painting, just as an articulation of a huge crowd. It's so brilliantly done. But I think only Rubens. I, I actually, I wonder if, if any other artists have inserted themselves in nativities like this, but only Rubens has got that, <laughs> the chutzpah to say, well, you know, I was there too. <laughs> well, no, you see, you see, if you hadn't rubbed out the Dura from the list, the great Dura um, adoration of the kings, you would have found not only does Dura got himself in there, he's actually playing Melchior. Oh, so right. Dura in his self-portrait nativity, <laughs> cast himself as one of the three kings. So that, that trumps Rubens. But otherwise, it's a much smaller picture with a much, much, much smaller cast. The construction of this painting is a fascinating story in itself because originally it was much smaller. Did you know that? The, fir the first part of it was... I know um, he took, it, took a long time to paint it, didn't he? Did he do that Rubens thing that he often did, which is sort of add bits? Well, he did add bits, but he did it in a rather unusual way because he was... Rubens was um, often uh, beginning pictures either on panel or on canvas and deciding that he needed a little bit more space here and there. So he would stitch on another seam of canvas and, and paint away. But this painting is slightly different. He actually finished the, the bottom left-hand side of it in 1609. It was painted for, a, I think, an Antwerp guild and thought no more of it. And then he went on a mission to, to Madrid, the court of Spain, in 1628. And he discovered that the painting now was part of the Spanish royal collection. And I think he, he felt that it ought to be slightly blingier and more royal. So he added bits to the top and he added the section on the right into which, of course, he painted himself. So it's a painting which has evolved rather fascinatingly over the course of its life. Hmm. So, yeah, here we are then, the top five nativities of all time. We started off with Georges de la Tour, which is basically really stripped down, just the baby and a couple of faces lit up. And we've ended with Rubens, where the whole of Antwerp's been invited in uh, to, to witness this great event. So there it is. After several recounts, we're finally in a position to announce that the winner of the 2020 Waldy and Bendy Award for the best nativity in art is Peter Paul Rubens for his adoration of the Magi. Rubens wins the Wendy. Ho, ho, ho! Now, most podcasts would be satisfied with deciding something as momentous as that. But not this podcast. This podcast is just starting because a Hollywood legend has been in touch with us. Or rather, he's been in touch with Bendy because he loves him, as we all do. And when I say Hollywood legend, I mean Hollywood legend. <laughs> 
So, Bendor, tell us about this. It's exciting. We need to know more. Who have you been talking to? Well, well, when we did our American special a few weeks ago, uh, coinciding with a certain piece of electoral good news from the United States, uh, we made such a terrible hash of telling the story of American art in 10 minutes that we wondered if we would ever possibly have any listeners left in America. Well, it turns out we do have one left. He's very long-suffering, and he is none other than the star of films such as Planes, Trains and Automobiles, L.A. Story, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, Roxanne, The Three Amigos, and many more. He has won a Grammy, he has an Oscar on his mantelpiece, and his name is Steve Martin. I joined him on a Zoom from New York to talk about his own adventures in art. First, let me just say how excited I am to be on the Waldy and Bendy show. I, I use you guys uh, at night to fall asleep to, and it <laughs> always works. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. And I love the uh, freewheeling chat you two have. Thank you. Well, we're glad to be of some service over there at nighttime in America. Um, but Steve, thank you for joining us. Uh, our listeners will, of course, know you as a comedian, an actor, writer, mm-hmm. and a musician. But I'd like to start by asking you about your time um, as a curator, because in uh, 2015, you created an exhibition on the Canadian landscape artist, Lauren Harris, who is one of Canada's so-called group of seven of early 20th century painters. And that show was very successful. It toured a number of major galleries like the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Um, How did the show come about? And and did you enjoy being a curator? Um, First, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had a, a long uh, time fascination with Lauren Harris, a Canadian painter. I've worked in Canada quite a bit. And my introduction to him was I mistook him for another artist, uh, Rockwell Kent, who's an American painter. So I was looking through an auction catalog and I saw what I thought was a Rockwell Kent. And then I realized it was this guy, Lauren Harris. And uh, he painted in the teens, 20s, 30s. Uh, he had a whole uh, lengthy uh, career in different styles. He basically had three different styles. And I thought, oh, I think I've discovered this artist, Lauren Harris in Canada, will be excited to he- hear of my discovery. So I watched uh, the auction house and it sold for $2 million. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, uh, you know, I'm just interested. And then I heard that a collector named Ken Thompson in Canada had, was buying all of them. He was very wealthy. He bought Rubens and gave them all uh, to the Art Gallery of Ontario. And I asked him if I could come see his pictures. And so I wrote him a letter and he said yes. And I went in and I saw all these great Lauren Harris paintings, mostly from the 20s and early 30s. That was the period I got very interested in. They're, they're I don't know how to describe them. They're, they're Arctic scenes. There's their winter scenes, they have a a spooky spirituality uh, to them. So I ended up buying one, just a little one, and I hung it on my wall in California. And uh, the director of the Hammer Museum, uh, Ann Philbin, was coming, having dinner, and she looked at the painting and she said, what's that? Mm -hmm. And then I did the pitch, you know, I just did for you. I said, you should know more about him. And then she wrote and said, would you like to curate a show about Lauren Harris? And, and I, would ne- I would never say yes, never. I don't have the skills. I, I'm not a, you know, uh, I have a friend who's a big art collector. And uh, 
we were all with the art people sitting around talking and someone asked him a, you know, a sophisticated art question. He had the best answer. He said, I'm just a fan. Mm -hmm. And sort of that's the way I feel. But, but I thought, gee, no one in America knows who this artist is except for a handful of people. And I'm one of them. And I thought, well, if I could use my name or something to help establish this artist. And uh, we started, uh, you know, it cost me a fortune because I flew everywhere <laughs> on my own uh, dime and went to Canada to see all these pictures. And we got great cooperation. But the greatest thrill was watching these, I think, what I think of as uh, Canadian masterpieces arrive in a room at your command yeah. <laughs> and uh, and moving them around and hanging them up and trying to get the best display uh, for the artist. And it was, uh, it went to Boston Museum of Fine Arts. It went to the Art Gallery of Ontario and uh, it was really fun. I made great friends and um, got a great catalog published. I'm getting the sense, Steve, that you like to discover artists. I've read also that you are very excited about um, promoting indigenous Australian art. Here's what happened. About, you know, four or five years ago, I just opened the New York Times in the art section, and there was a, a half-page spread on an artist named uh, Walimpiri Japaljari. And he was having a show in New York City, and I looked at the image of the picture that he was standing at, the painting, and I thought, what? is that i've never seen anything like that before is that they're, they're abstract but they have roots in mythology and they have, they have roots in realism yeah that's uh, so because each, each painting represents the landscape yeah. um so i got on my bicycle fortunately it was a summer and i went down and i saw the show and i bought one and hung it and loved it and i got more and more into it and started reading everything I could because they were, the pictures were like, like nothing I had ever seen. It's quite a story about how that school of painting emerged, isn't it? Uh, it involves, if I'm right in thinking, uh, a lost tribe that emerged from the Western Australian desert in the 1980s. It's quite a rare survival in art history because if you think of uh, in the decades before how Indigenous Australians had been rather forcibly westernized and of course any any artistic tradition had been completely lost so um, that was quite a lucky survival that by the time it emerged in the 1970s and 80s people were starting to take uh, Indigenous Australian cultures a little bit more seriously. The story of the Pentope Nine is amazing. The In the in the 50s the government uh, wanted to do bomb testing over the outback so they told every uh, indigenous Australian to get out and they were relocated mm -hmm. and, uh, and some wanted to because the, the conditions of living in the outback were so treacherous. Um, and so some came in and some were kind of forced in, uh, but one uh, family stayed. This would have been in the late sixties, I'm assuming. And, uh, and then in 1983-84, the, the people who had come in to the settlements remembered them and said they could see fires in the distance, so they knew they were still out there. 
and their family members. Everybody is kind of, uh, it's complicated and I don't want to represent it when I don't know it that well. But they decided to go look for them and they drove out and this guy, Wallen Peary, who uh, the painting I bought, mm -hmm. uh, he was 25 at the time and they had a confrontation uh, that went bad, you know, with a gun accidentally firing and, and uh, there were nine of them. And when they were discovered, they, came, they asked them, do you want to come in? They weren't forced. They said yes, because there was no water. There was, it, it was a difficult existence. So they came in, and one of the uh, members was Yakulchi Napangati, who was 13 at the time. And she became uh, a famous international painter. And I was had the great fortune of meeting her and owning some of her work. So it's a great story. And of course, the newspaper said, we, we discovered the lost tribe. And they said, we weren't lost. <laughs> we knew where we were. And, and you've helped put on exhibitions of, of these artists' work in places like the Gagosian Gallery in New York. Yes, well, you know, I, I just started acquiring some paintings and I just really liked them and hung them. And, and one day I was, uh, uh, oh, so I, I, I have a little art storage place. I never stored art before, but these are so big and I had, uh, you know, more than I could hang in our house. I got a little art storage unit and you can rent a gallery. So I rented a gallery for uh, three days it's not expensive. It sounds like a big deal, but it's not. And I just hung them up and I invited people to come see these pictures, which New York had really never seen almost. And um, then Larry Gagosian said, why don't we do a show? And I said, OK. Mm -hmm. And, he, you know, he does everything first rate. And uh, it was a great experience. And it really introduced this art uh, in a the way I see it with this kind of visual Rothko chapel power. Yeah. Well, we'll put a link up on our website, zzzfilms.com, to the Gagosian exhibition and other examples. Uh, one of the ones that I was absolutely mesmerized by is a, a huge painting uh, by an artist called Emily Kama Unware. Um, yes. And it's, it's a sort of um, a landscape, abstract landscape painted in, in its rather, um, if you break down its components in quite a simple way, uh, but it carries a, a complexity that you just never see in, in modern abstract art. And it, 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 it's fascinating how it comes from that totally separate uh, tradition. Uh, and can you, you, you think as an art lover, you think you've seen it all in contemporary art. But when you see something mm -hmm. like that, goodness me, it carries such a, a different power, doesn't it? There, you know, she has different periods. She, she, you know, she didn't start painting until she was 80-something. And she painted for six years. Yeah. And in, in during that six years, uh, she went through at least three or four different styles. And she was a maniac, just painting. I own a picture uh, by her, because they're all, all, all uh, these pictures are painted on the ground. Yeah. So there is no up. Right. And they're painted going around the picture. So there can be, you can hang it horizontally, you can hang it vertically, it all works. But I have one picture that she's painting and it's got dog prints on it and a, uh, a scholar said he was there when it was being painted and the dog walked across it and she didn't care at all <laughs> it's just part of being outdoors yeah it's lo lovely stuff and lovely well these story. are complicated pictures they they represent the food the yams uh where they traveled i mean i was looking at one picture by mckinty and she described 
Mackindy Napangati, and she described the painting, and she said, and you're looking at a total abstract picture, and she says, this is the route the women took to get food. They went to this uh, water hole, then they went to this rock, and they stayed the night at this rock and froze to death and died. God. <laughs> uh, and it's so, it's so important that we record all this stuff, isn't it? Um, and put it, putting on these uh, exhibitions and helping with shows like this, you've, you've obviously had to do a lot of writing about art. Um, and in fact, you've also written a book about the art world called An Object of Beauty, uh, which is about the life of a New York art dealer called Lacey Yeager. I was delighted to see that in your art writing, you've, you've dedicated yourself to, to a clarity about writing about art and have resisted the urge to, to write in what we call art speak, that that terrible jargon-laden language that people sometimes feel they need to use when they're writing about art. You've written in, you wrote in the beginning of your book, actually, that writing with clarity about art is more difficult than it sounds. It is, isn't it? Oh, I, I, you know, it's so much easier to be obscure. Yeah. yeah. And you're trying to pin something down in words uh, <laughs> that is visual. I think art speak is people writing for each other, um, you know, in uh, academic uh, circumstances. And I read it right. I, I tried to parse it. I could not fathom any what it was about. No. And I get into terrible trouble when I point out to my um, academic art historian colleagues that I, I just don't understand what they're trying to say in three pages. Um, right. Sometimes I think the reason they get so cross about it is that they don't either. But what I find so baffling or intriguing about this art speak is it it's so serious, isn't it? Well, I think it's like a, a science paper. You know, a, a science paper, you write a science paper for another scientist, and they're going, oh, yeah, so this equals and the hypotenuse, you know, goes on and on and on. They understand it, so from scholar to scholar, but that's a closed world. And I think it's, it's fine. I mean, it's fine, but it doesn't help me or someone who, who wants that uh, emotional a response to art not that they don't but uh and i used to collect it i have a friend in los angeles she's a writer and she would send uh art speak thing and there's a you know there's an art speak generator on the internet yes i think it's much used by catalog yes writers. Yeah. yeah um i i collect it too i used to write a, a had a blog um and i used to put stuff on it like this a long time ago before i grew up um but i i my favorite example was about uh Cy tombley's blackboard paintings you know the, the big squirrels yeah. mm -hmm. which of course like all these things there's a there's a huge series of them and they they sell for 60 70 million dollars um mm -hmm. and i noticed reading the the christie's catalog entry for one of them it's full of guff and i'll put a link to it on the website it's quite amusing but they cut and pasted it to catalog other examples from the series which then came up later on so um it just revealed the futility of this art speak to me because you can only really you can only do it once can't you oh yeah well there uh, yeah. Well, I wonder if uh, coming at um, these things from a, the angle of a comedian, does the humor in art come at you easily or do you have to find it? I mean, I'm always surprised by how seriously these things are taken. Uh, Duchamp's urinal, for example, seems to me to be, you know, that, that was a joke, wasn't it? But the amount of serious nonsense that's written about it. Um, well, you know, the great thing about art is it has so many aspects. You can, it can be funny, it can be serious, it can be beautiful. You know, like you said earlier, I, I like, I, my biggest problem is, is I love second rate stuff. 
<laughs> I, I am so seduced by, and I don't mean that second rate, I mean second tier. And, uh, and I have always had to fight against that instinct, but I just love uh, minor works. I really, really like them. I yeah. find them rich. And I don't even know if that answered your question. I'm not sure, but. Well, I'm, I'm getting the sense that um, you, you like to, to go off off beam and find things that are that are not necessarily eulogized by everybody else and it's marvelous that you also then want to evangelize and celebrate them i think we both share a love of norman rockwell do we absolutely I uh i i have a friend who's I, a friend or two who are the biggest collectors of norman rockwell in the world uh-huh. and it's like george uh, uh george lucas oh. and uh he's building a museum of uh, dedicated to uh, illustrative art. And of course, Norman Rockwell is at the center. But you, I, I remember when I first started collecting and looking at art, you know, Norman Rockwell was off to the side. Yeah. Do you think that's he because he's funny? Do you think he's not taken seriously because he can be funny? Well, I think there were, there, that's one thing. But there was also, he was a, he was a magazine illustrator. And he never claimed uh, to be a great artist until you see one. Yeah. Yeah. When you see one, you it, it's amazing. When I saw a show in Washington, D.C. of Rockwell, I was really taken aback because I could look at a figure, and of course they're charming. And, uh, and, and also he was a, uh, he, was, he fought racism. He, he was a, a kind of a political figure. Uh, and... But what it came away with from that show was his incredible skill at anatomy. Yeah. And I could see, I think I wrote you this, that I could see the shape of the body under the clothes. You could see how the cloth was being pushed out by a knee or, you know, whatever. And uh, I really came away impressed, but, but I've seen pictures in person that are just stunning well when you see his uh, his working technique and the amount of studies and sketches he used to do to get to unbelievable perfect but i was looking on the the collection site of moma and i they don't seem to have a single work by him which seems to me quite amazing we have a similar situation here in the uk where artists like ls lowry have never really been taken as seriously as the right i love uh, ls lowry that was another uh, artist I thought I discovered. <laughs> I, I kept seeing these pictures by Ellis Lowry. I say, I'm really attracted to these. I wonder if anyone in England has ever heard of them. Oh, well, please come and do a Lowry exhibition. It would be fantastic. <laughs> I wouldn't know enough about that, but yeah, no, I, I love them. There's a quite a good movie done about him recently. Oh yeah, the, the, the great Timothy Spall. Yes, uh, really I good. Have, I have yet to see. We were watching again uh, Ellie's story, which uh, we enjoyed so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, and that lovely scene when you're in LACMA. Mm-hmm. Do you, what was that huge painting, that huge pink painting that you're standing in front of? Helen uh, Frankenthaler. Helen Frankenthaler. And yeah. you're giving a great exposition of, 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 of art speak and meaning in this great pink right. painting. And then the right. camera cuts and there you are in front of a, uh, a big... A com- completely abstract painting. I mean, it's just a joke. You know, I don't take any exceptional pride in it but you know what fun can you have in an art museum well exactly yes um and then of course you roller skate around it um is that is is that something you've been tempted to do in other museums no no 
Now, I can't remember uh, how I came up with that or why. Um, oh, I, I think I got the idea because they were actually making at the time in Los Angeles uh, shoes where you could press a button and they became roller skates. And I thought, we got to use that somehow. And I actually learned how to roller skate and do turns and, you know, anyway. And, the and it was the director's idea to uh, skate by the Van Gogh sunflowers and have the leaves rustle, <laughs> the, uh, the petals rustle, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's very few genuine art history jokes, actually, but I'll tell you one in case you have. Oh, heard. please. Sir Anthony Van Dyke, great portraitist of the early 17th century, of course, mm -hmm. uh, was famed for painting beautiful hands and fingers. And somebody said to him, Sir Anthony, why do you take such care with your sitter's hands? And he said, ah, well, the hands pay the bill. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> there we are. I've told Steve Martin a joke. Excellent. Yes. Um, so, Steve, uh, we won't take up uh, too much more of your time. Thank you very much. But you've, you've given us a little glimpse into your curating life. And we're going to bring you back into the curating world by uh, appointing you an honorary curator of our lockdown gallery. I like because, that. Uh, each week in the podcast, we have a section we call On the Wall, uh, mm -hmm. where we choose any painting in the world we would like to take home with us during all these uh, lockdowns and have in our homes. So far, it's pretty impressive. We've got pictures by uh, Rembrandt. There's a Raphael or two. Uh, and this week, we're going to let you go out and choose uh, any painting in any museum in the world and let you take it home. So please tell us what you've chosen. Sure. Now, first of all, you know, obviously, I'd say, well, it says on still life, but... <laughs> Some pictures are too powerful to actually have and sit in front of and have dinner. So those are all vetoed, all those uh, great world international masterpieces. Indigestion but, art, we call them. Yeah, but I because uh, it makes you sick yeah. <laughs> to, that it's so beautiful and and that that you don't really own it. You're you're sick. So. Um, I chose a picture, but it has a little history with. When I first started getting interested in art in my 20s, I was in Los Angeles, and uh, there were collectors there named Joanne and Julian Gans, and they collected 19th century American paintings, which are all very tight, and they're almost like pre-Raphaelite pic pictures in that they're every detail, every leaf on every tree, and they're very beautiful. Yeah. And I went to their home, but this one picture stood out to me. And it was by Raphael Peel. And it was a still life uh, painted in 1814. And by the way, the Peel family has a rich history. The, the father is Charles Wilson Peel. And he had a, a museum. And he named his children Titian, Raphael, Rembrandt, Rubens. All right. So you knew he was interested in art. So Raphael turned out to be the star. And he painted these exquisite still lifes. This is a, a ceramic bowl with a couple of oranges. I think there's a lemon off to the side. It's some walnuts. But the, the, the layout of the picture is, is so perfect. And in a way, it reminded me of the, the great Zuberon still life with those three uh, indistinct still lifes. But this is unified. And you can even see in the, in the bold, you can see the, the tiniest, little wear around the rim of the bowl that's holding these things. So anyway, um, and I was stunned by this picture. And then they ended up giving it 
to the National Gallery in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, at least I'm 99% sure that they did. And um, I've always had a special feeling for that picture because it was one of the first pictures I saw in person where I went, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're waiting, when you're a young art person interested in art, you're waiting for that moment where you go, wow, I see what everybody's talking about. So I'd like to spend a little time with that. Okay. It is a, it's a beautiful picture. And um, the, the attention to detail is extraordinary. I see exactly what you say about the wear on the bowl and also the glass decanter on the left. That's obviously had a bit of a, a, bit of a tough life because every now and then there's a little nick in the glass which just catches the reflection. Right. Raphael Peel had a rather tragic life. Um, you mentioned his father uh, giving his children um, all those rather extraordinary names. I have to say, um, someone with a name like mine usually rebels against the idea of normative determinism. But he also had two daughters and he called them uh, Angelica Kaufman Peel and Sophonisba Anguissola Peel. Sophonisba? Yeah. And the only one of his kids who didn't become a painter was Titian Ramsey Peel. He became an ornithologist. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's like interesting that he even, Charles Wilson Peel, even knew who Sophonisba was. Yeah, yeah. Because I just saw a show in Madrid of, I can't pronounce her last name, Sophonisba. Anguissola. Yeah, thank you. And it was stunning. I felt like her self-portrait was uh, Mona Lisa. It was so beautiful. And poor old Raphael Peel, uh, his dad didn't really approve of him painting these still lives. And he used to write, he used to write him rather uh, bullying letters saying that uh, he should stop uh, painting objects that have no emotion. And he should act like wow. a man and paint real subjects. And I'm yeah. thinking, writing saying that Raphael Peel was rather neglected uh, until the 20th century when people started to pay attention to his still lives, which were the first... Right. Well, I didn't know all those details. That's why I'm a lousy curator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. You, you, you've, you've chosen an artwork by an artist who was, and perhaps is for a time, underappreciated. And you say you like works in the second tier or um, the second rank, but I think that's where the fun lies in art, isn't it? It's not about just going into a gallery and looking at the label and thinking, I have to like that because it's by a big name. Well, I, I agree. I've had so much fun. I mean, I had a period with uh, early 20th century English art okay. with David Bomberg. Yeah. I like to say Lowry and I love Paul Nash. I just, I, I don't think I've ever even seen a Paul Nash in person. Yeah. But do you think for a while that we could get you into William Dobson? He's very keen on early 70th century British painters like William Dobson. Oh, uh, I think I learned about him from your podcast. Is that possible? It might be, yes. Yeah. Well, we'll have to rope you in as a, as a celebrity William Dobson fan. That will make Waldemar's day. All right, I'll have to look. I'll have to spend some time with that. Well, Steve, I'll let you get on with your day. I cannot thank you enough for sharing. Thank you. I've had a, a, a great time. Say hello to Waldy. By the way, would you like me to show you a few pictures? Well, why not? And then Steve very kindly showed me some of the pictures he has on his walls at home. He just could not have been lovelier or kinder. And aren't we lucky to have had him on the podcast? We certainly are, and you're lucky. Did he invite you over to California? Are you going to go there to look at Steve Martin's <laughs> art collection? Can I come too? You can come too. In fact, uh, why don't we pitch something to him, Wilder? We can have the three amigos of the art world. Steve can obviously be Steve. Um, I'll be Chevy Chase uh, character. Uh, you can be Martin Short. How about that?
uh, Martin Short. I thought you were going to say Groucho Marx. Oh, yeah, I'll be anybody, anybody just to go and see Steve Martin and his collection. What a fascinating guy and genuine interest in art. You could you could tell that. I mean, sometimes you hear about, you know, Hollywood collectors and they're all trying to buy Banksy's, aren't they? Um, and I quite yes. like Banksy, but it's not in the same league, is it? Well, who, who would have thought it? Lauren Harris. I mean, that's an obscure person to pick out as well to do the first show on. I mean, I know a little bit about him, but not much. I mean, it's... um. That, that whole group of seven thing is fascinating. The the Aborigines, that was interesting, Aboriginal art. I remember how that came from nowhere to become somewhere. Um, so he's got pioneering taste. I love that idea that he says that he, he likes second-rate stuff. <laughs> but it's not second-rate, is it? I mean, what, what, what he means is that he likes stuff that happens away from the mainstream. That's what, that's what it is, isn't it? It's, it's just stuff that isn't the normal story, as it were, that we're all pushed. Yeah, away from the mainstream. I think that's why you might listen to uh, to our podcast, Wildy, because <laughs> eccentric <laughs> and slightly off the beaten track is slightly chaotic. But I was, I, you know, I tell you what, I had a terribly onerous time doing some research for the interview, watching all his fantastic films, which um, would really stand the test of time, actually. You know, these are uh, some of these things made 20 years ago, and they're still laugh out loud funny, which is, uh, you can't often say that. But um, I was also reading some of the books he's written, some of the stuff he's written about art, and he's He's very perceptive about the art world. He's been amongst it for many years, but not of it. As a result, he's made some very astute observations about how, um, how, for example, the art market works in that he wrote a book about the art market called An Object of Beauty. And many things uh, chimed with me, having been an art dealer, about how slightly underhand the art market can be. There is one slight thing I should say in his book. The protagonist art dealer in his book seems to have a lot of sex. There's lots of sex in Steve Martin's <laughs> art market, and I don't quite recognise that from my experience of it, but that, that could just be the old master market for you. I like the way he made you feel a little bit discomforted by some of his references to artists that you don't know a lot about or that you've not had much sympathy for. Helen Frankenthaler, for example. I felt I could almost hear you quaking a bit at the other end of the line there. <laughs> and the Rothko Chapel. I mean, you've had a bang at the Rothko Chapel on this podcast and he brought it out as something <laughs> wonderful to look at. There's a sense in which his modernity clashed with your 18th century presence uh, just a little bit. Oh, and also you told that joke, which you've told me before on here, the one about um, Van Dyke's hands. Oh. Yeah. Well, there's only one joke I know, and I'm going to repeat <laughs> it endlessly to anyone who listens. Can I tell you my art history joke then? Oh, please do. We need. Well, it's not one. an art history joke. It's actually a true story. I was going into the Tate, Tate Britain once, and um, do, do you know an artist called Bruce McLean? He was a sort of 1980s, 90s English painter. Nice, really nice guy, Scottish artist. And he comes up to me, he's, oh, Voldemort, he said, Voldemort. I said, hold on, he said... Oh, he said, I've, I've been asked to curate a show. He said, um, I'm not sure whether I should do it. So he said, um, I don't know a lot about all the artists. He said, do you know anything about Augustus Egg? And I said, well, I don't a lot, but I do know Augustus Egg. Obviously, he's a 19th century painter, famous for carriages and things. I know a little bit about him, not much. He said, yeah, I don't know much about him. But so I was going to do the show, he says. He said, I've got to do the show with um, Lucian Freud and uh, Francis Bacon. Uh, and it was going to be called Freud, Egg and Bacon. <laughs> That's worth it. That's worth it just for the title, isn't it? <laughs> there you get it. Freud, Egg and Baker. Oh, you didn't even know. And, and that's my that's my uh, my only art history joke. <laughs> so the other thing that came up that was interesting was Raphael Peel. Now, I see. Do you know I do this thing on Twitter where um, I do the birthdays of artists, and I try and choose people that are a little less known. I mean, I've done all the famous ones. I'm going through the the, the less famous ones now. And uh, this year I did Raphael Peel. Uh, I even remember the birthday. It was 17th of February. Oh. Do you know about Raphael Peel? I do know a bit about him. Fascinating character. The first painter of still lives in American art. 
Yeah, and he specialised in, in sort of oranges and lemons. I mean, Steve Martin described the painting that he liked round when he went round to the Gantz's house, and it was the uh, the one with oranges and lemons. So, so guess what um, Raphael Peel's nickname was? Uh, fruity. Citrus Peel. Seriously, that's what they called him. <laughs> no, that, that was his name, <laughs> Citrus Peel. I should have thought of that. That's very good. No, it's not a joke. It's true. It's actually true. <laughs> he also specialised in trompe l'oeil paintings, and he liked an artistic gag. We might be able to put these pictures on the website. Uh, one of them was called The Catalogue, and it's uh, a depiction of a, of a catalogue slightly battered hanging on a wall, and he painted that to go at the, the entrance of his father's art museum. And apparently people used to reach out and think that they could pick the catalogue up and go around the museum with it. Yeah, he's that sort of painter, very sort of realist. And again, just sits outside the mainstream, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? The great thing about art, really, is that you've got people who write the canon, as it were, you know, who describe what is meant to have happened, this big narrative. So particularly in the 20th century, you had the narrative of modernism. So from Picasso, you get Cubism and then abstraction, then surrealism and then abstract expression. There's this kind of journey that you're meant to have gone on. And people who didn't go on that journey, um, such as, for example, Paul Nash, which is also mentioned by um, Steve Martin, they tend to get missed out of that. So they, they're forgotten. And then mm. later on, when history no longer matters, when we're 100 years past all that, when things have happened that are all different, we start to find these people again. It, it's mm. no longer a question of saying he looks old fashioned compared to Picasso or yeah. he's not progressive and he was. Those things don't matter because time has worked its magic and they're just people who are set in a kind of past. And it's much easier, I think, to see the real quality, isn't it? Once time has flowed far enough ahead. Yes, absolutely. I'm all for disrupting the canon. In fact, I don't know if I just put this on the podcast, but you know I'm, I'm supposed to be writing a book about the history of British art. Very short one. Well, isn't it all about William Dobson and then you've got a couple of footnotes at the end for some other people? Is that, is that how it's going? It's all about Van Dyke and Dobson gets a footnote. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so, so the idea, you have to submit your proposal to the, the publishers and then it gets peer-reviewed. And my peer review came back rather brutal from one of the reviewers. And it was full of the phrase, um, not in accordance with accepted scholarship or current scholarship. And I just thought, you know, I don't care what current scholarship says. You know, I've been asked to write a book about the history of British art. It's, it's the wonderful thing about history. It, it, there's no right or wrong. It's so subjective. And I absolutely agree with what you say, that we, we should resist this temptation to kind of put everybody into the, the overarching narrative of art history just because other people say we should. Mm. Well, look, Bengdi, we all know you're a rebel. You're a rebel by instinct. And uh, that's why you, everybody loves you so much on this podcast. And that's why I love you as well. Uh, and that's absolutely right. You've got to think for yourself and see for yourself. That's absolutely true. Fortunately, we have the opportunity to do this on this podcast because we always get the chance to imagine what we would like to see on our walls during these terrible times we're living through. Not what the canon wants, but what we want. And that's why this part of the programme that's coming up, that's why it's our favourite bit of the podcast. On the Wall. Ah, On the Wall. It's great that um, Steve Martin chose that Raphael Peel picture. We're still sticking with our Christmas special theme and gone for sort of wintry things on On the Wall. Uh, at least I have, and I think you have as well, Bendy. What, what have you got for us? Oh, I'm rebelling again, actually, because um, one of the things I slightly like to rebel against is the ghettoization of art, the idea that great art can only be paintings or sculptures of a certain kind. I love travel posters, and I 
chosen one of the Swiss resort of Klosters by the Swiss graphic artist Donald Brunn. He was um, one of the, the biggest names in graphic art, this kind of graphic art, of the late 20th century. And this picture is so joyous. It was done in 1952, and it shows a snowy mountain, and going, reaching up above us is a cable car, and falling down from the cable car are the, the colourful letters spelling Klosters, which is the, the famous Swiss ski resort. Now, as I think I may have mentioned before on the podcast, I'm half Swiss, and my Swiss family come, in fact, from that part of Switzerland, and we used to go to Klosters very often. In fact, my grandfather, when he was in the Swiss army during the war, used to patrol the border with Germany and Austria up in those very mountains. Now, this year, of course, due to the pandemic, we can't go. Um, so I'm going to put this lovely poster by the great Donald Brunn on my wall and dream of Christmas holidays past. <laughs> uh, why is that the most typical thing you could do? Yes, it's your Apri ski poster, Bendor. It's lovely. And it says Closters in very big letters all the way down the middle. And I certainly sympathise with you. I know if, you, if you're used to skiing as much as you are, it must be terrible not to be able to just nip over to Switzerland and and have a skiing holiday in that, that beautiful chalet, which is no doubt of the sort that you see at the bottom of the poster as well. There's gorgeous chalets with their snowy roofs. Oh, and all that cheese fondue and the schnapps. Ooh, I can lovely. just, I can imagine it all. Well, listen, I've stayed with the winter thing. I'm more like in the hall rather than on the wall because my thing doesn't go on the wall. Um, it's a seal skin diving suit from the beginning of the 19th century that was found and preserved in Greenland. Now, it looks like something that an underwater diver might wear, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because that's pretty much what it is. And what it is, it's uh, an Inuit whale catching outfit that appears in the Arctic show that's on at the moment at the British Museum. Now, I think I told you before that I was really rude about this show. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. I gave it a very bad review because I thought it the line I use, which is really brutal, is that they seem to have learnt their anthropology from watching Frozen. Um, <laughs> it just felt so too cheerful and as if it couldn't really represent what life in the Arctic was really like. Let it go, Weldy, let it go. It was harsh. And, and to make up for being so harsh, I've chosen this object, which is the one thing in the show that haunted me. So what it is, right? So it's a sealskin outfit, as it were, a onesie. It's a sealskin onesie with a hood. And these... Inuit people would get in. There's a little hole in the front which you could loosen and tighten with thongs. They would get inside it, right in the middle, completely tie themselves into this thing, get someone else to blow hot air in. The seal skin was completely um, sealed in. And then they would go on a boat into the sea outside Greenland and they would jump on the back of a whale wearing <laughs> this outfit. And with a harpoon... They would harpoon the whale and then they'd jump back on the boat and catch the whale, right? I mean, my God, how can anybody do this? And, and not only is this outfit brilliantly assembled out of seal skins, it's supposed to have this sort of magic power as well. So because they believe that if you're wearing something by an animal, like a seal, you know, you then become a great swimmer as well. So mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, the Inuit could swim away. I love that magic feeling of it. And because I'm trying to, in a way, pay penance for my bad review of the British Museum show, I feel this magic outfit with these magic properties, it's an amazing example of what humanity can achieve. And to me, this year, it seems important to 
to look at things like this and to feel this sense that we're, we're a great species, we can do amazing things, we can withstand terrible times. So maybe this kind of outfit symbolizes that for me. So yes, I've chosen it, the Inuit early 19th century whale hunting seal skin onesie for harpooning. I've, you've left me now with the most fantastic image to sustain me through Christmas, which is you dressed up in this Inuit onesie, your wife and poor daughters blowing hot air into it <laughs> as you blow up like the Michelin man after your turkey dinner full of mince pies. <laughs> and then you're going to go and jump into a lake and try and catch a fish. Ah, <laughs> oh, you know me so well, don't you? Yes, it is. It is hilarious. And it, it is a wonderful thing. Yeah, although we're, we're having a good laugh here. There is a, I think there is a serious point to be, to be made at this point, Bendor. It's been a terrible year for art. Um, our sympathies, certainly my sympathies and yours, go out to the museums of this nation, especially the British Museum. I'm so sorry for that terrible review. It's a great show, everybody. Go and see the Arctic at the British Museum. But every museum, every gallery and everybody in the arts has had a really tough time this year. So you know, we're coming to the end of the podcast. And I, I, for one, would just like to say I hope things get better and I wish everybody well in the future. What do you think, Bendor? Oh, I absolutely agree with every word you say. Everybody in this country and around the world has had the most terrible trials this year. I think people in the arts have had so many challenges and in museums and they've performed magnificently because it's things like art which will sustain us and help us get through the other side. So I would like to say a big thank you to everybody in our world who has kept going this year and I look forward to seeing you all next year. Yep, we've got one final treat for people. It turns out that you're not the only person with a superstar fan on this podcast, Bendor. <laughs> Another one of our listeners is also somebody famous. Indeed, somebody who's um, responsible for what I believe is the most popular Christmas song of the 21st century. That's mm -hmm. what I'm told. They listen to the podcast, they love what we do, and they sent us a message, and here it is. Hi, it's Shane McGowan. I'm just wishing Woody and Bendy a happy Christmas, and art lovers everywhere, a happy Christmas. All right, thanks a lot. This is Shane McGowan signing off. You know, Bender, I'm so, I'm so touched by that. I love Shane McGowan. I think he's one of the greatest songwriters of our times. Um, and he's an artist as well. He, he paints, he draws. Hopefully, in the future, we might be able to do something about that as well. Anyway, that's, that's the last of the podcasts for 2020, for this terrible year of ours. Hopefully, uh, new podcasts and better times ahead. We're going to leave you with the only appropriate song we can leave you with, I think. Uh, but for me, anyway, in the meantime, it's goodbye. And cheerio and happy Christmas from me. Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank, an old man said to me, won't see another one, and then he sang a song, the rare old mountain dew, I turned my face away. And dreamed about you God, I'm the lucky one Came in late ten to one I've got a feeling 
Christmas Day 